Well, Happy New Year, church. It's good to see you on this day. The Lord has been kind to give us a new year together, and we look forward to uh, all that he has in store for us. At this time, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles. We're back in the Gospel of Luke. Turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 39 this morning. Luke chapter 2, 22 through 39. Took a brief break last week. Kel Benefield was preaching. It's always good to have one of our own come back and be able to preach God's word to us. And so thankful for Kel and his ministry uh, there in Ohio and continue to pray for him and his wife, Jackie. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking, beginning in verse 22. I'm going to begin reading there down through verse 39. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Luke writes, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who, opens, uh, who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And, when he, and he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel and the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer, with prayer, fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And then verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit now to come and give us understanding of this word that you would allow your word to sell upon our ears and hearts in a way that would transform and change us, that it would be for our own good and your glory. Thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself, that you have revealed truth to us. Lord, would you help us now see it and respond to it accordingly? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think about what the most pressing question of our day is, what would you say? What is the most pressing question of our day? Well, several options I'm sure could quickly make their way into your minds. Maybe some would say, well, terrorism, or the need for a cure for many of these diseases that we have, such as cancer the need for affordable quality health care, many injustices that are taking place in the world like human trafficking, ongoing racism, the need for world peace and such. 
Maybe some of the pressing question is, will the Redskins ever have a winning season? As you know, there are many questions that weigh heavy on our minds, many we would consider pressing. And there are many that are important. Many of these are certainly important questions that deserve our careful thought and prayer and attention. But the most pressing question of our day is really the same pressing question that has existed for centuries. The most, question, the most pressing question of the day really has to do with who is Jesus. When you look at Luke chapter two, we, if you've been in, in church long or if you're familiar with the gospels in any way, you know that this is just after Jesus was born, some 40 days or so later, that Jesus' parents, his earthly parents, bring him to the temple to provide a sacrifice for purification and to dedicate him to the Lord. And when you look at this chapter, there are several people that are to be highlighted. You know, even though they're not mentioned per se by name, you have the parents, Jesus, Mary and Joseph present. You have a man, a layman in Jerusalem named Simeon, and you have a prophetess by the name of Anna. And all of these are important to the story, and they have their own uh, perspectives to bring to this story. But when you consider them, I mean, just think about the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph, their obedience to the law of God. You think of Simeon's righteousness, his, his devout commitment to the Lord, a man we're told here who was led by the Holy Spirit. You have Anna, a prophetess, a lady who was used of the Lord, spending her days in the temple praying and fasting. Just the pious faithfulness, the, the, the righteousness of these folks that we could just highlight and see, look how faithful they are. And yet, in all of this, we see that this passage doesn't have as much to do with the faithfulness of these individuals as it does concerning who Jesus is. This passage is full of the devoted and faithful, and their example is indeed to be commendable. But while they, along with their faithfulness, play an important part of this scene, we see how all of their actions and words and responses in this scene lead us to see that Jesus is, in fact, the central point of this text. Their posture toward Jesus shows that he is, in fact, the main character. And that is not only true in this, these few verses that we're looking at this morning, but that is indeed true concerning the entirety of Scripture. And I'd just ask you this morning, who do you see Jesus to be? What do you make of Jesus Christ? Do you embrace Jesus as he is depicted in the Gospels? Do you trust that Jesus? Or do you believe in a Jesus of your own fashioning and your own making? Maybe a Jesus that kind of fits your life, fits your expectations. Friends, it's crucial, it is crucial that you get these questions right. Because who you see Jesus to be will make every difference in the world to who you turn out to be. So as we come to our passage this morning in Luke's gospel here in chapter two, it's been some 40 days after Jesus' birth and we find Mary and Joseph bringing him to the temple in Jerusalem. And in this one scene from this brief temple visit, through the mouth of a devout layman named Simeon and a prophetess named Anna, we are given a snapshot of, in fact, who Jesus is. 
Indeed, we see several important truths about him. Not, it's not an exhaustive treatment of Jesus, but certainly we see a snapshot of who he is and what he came to provide so that we can know him and follow him. And that should lead us to love him and to be all the more devoted to him. So let's consider these observations, these truths about Jesus that come to the surface in this passage this morning from these different people. First of all, we see, we consider who Jesus is. We see in this text that Jesus is claimed to be the source of our comfort. Jesus is the source of our comfort. You see that there in verses 22 through 26. Joseph and Mary are presented here as pious law-abiding Jews. In response to the law's requirement, the couple make their way to Jerusalem to fulfill the law of purification. That, that law stated, as we're highlighting here, that law stated that a mother of a male child would have been considered unclean for seven days and then should wait an additional 33 days before going to the temple in order to offer a sacrifice. And that's exactly what they do. But in addition to fulfilling the purification requirement, they also, because of the firstborn instruction, they also go to present and dedicate Jesus to the Lord. So you see here the faithfulness of these Jewish parents certainly to be commendable. And they're pious, they're, they're trying to, to obey the law. But once they arrive, they make their way into the temple, they cross paths with this man named Simeon. Simeon was a layman in living in Jerusalem. Luke doesn't give us exactly his vocation, but he does highlight his character. He, we're told that he is righteous and devout. He's an exemplary saint. He's a godly man. He's someone that we should, should, should look to as a good example. And we know that based upon this passage that he had been told that he would not see death until he laid eyes on the Messiah, upon the Lord's Christ. But notice what Luke says of this righteous, devout Simeon. There in verse 25, it says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout. Notice the next phrase, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Consolation of Israel was a reference to the hope and to the comfort that God had promised his people long ago. God had long promised to bring his people consolation and that's exactly what Jesus came to provide. The people of Israel had suffered greatly throughout their history, sometimes due to their own sin, sometimes due to the oppression of others around them, sometimes a combination of both. Their land was frequently overrun by foreign leaders. They suffered as slaves and exiles and they longed, they had a history of just bad negative, horrible kinds of things. And they were a people who longed for consolation and comfort. Simeon himself had long been anticipating and clinging to the promise that God would in fact comfort his people. And you see references to this promise of comfort all throughout the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40 verse one and 51 verse three, 57 verse 18, we could go on and on and on and see how in the Old Testament through the mouths of the prophets, God promising that he is going to console, comfort, bring hope to his people. And it's going to come through this one, this anointed one, this Messiah. We know now Jesus came to fulfill. See, in a world where God's people had experienced oppression, opposition, hardship, 
even judgment due to their own sin, Jesus was coming to bring comfort. But that comfort would not, we know, be ultimately and fully realized in this world, though they would get a taste of it. On one hand, the consolation Simeon was anticipating came. It did come in the form of Jesus and what he came to accomplish. And yet, on the other hand, it's not yet fully realized either. The thing that Simeon teaches us, though, is that Jesus is worth the wait because he, and he alone, is the source of all our consolation and comfort. Friends, you know, even some 2,000 years later, we are often under this illusion that we can manufacture our own comfort. We are often deceived into thinking that somehow in some way, if I can just change circumstances or get in the right pathway or do this or do that, that I can somehow manufacture my own sense of consolation and comfort and peace. Friends, we often pursue and even settle for substitutes that we think will console us. In fact, you may very well be present this morning and have just, maybe you're exhausted because you have been striving to find consolation through someone or through something other than Jesus. The reality is, is that you're not finding it. And friend, the reality is, is that you continue to look in those places, you will not find it. Only Jesus is the source of our consolation. It's true for his people Israel. It's true for those who God has grafted in through the Gentiles. Friends, only Jesus can give you true and lasting comfort. Even though we still live in a day of darkness and difficulty, the fact that Jesus came and gave himself for our sake is proof that he cares for us and that he came to ultimately give us what we needed most. And not only did he come and provide for us the consolation we needed, he gave us his Holy Spirit, the Comforter as a down payment, if you will, for the everlasting consolation we will enjoy when Jesus comes again. See, Jesus came as the source of our comfort. But second that we see in this text, not only is he the source of our comfort, Jesus is the provider of our salvation. He's the provider of our salvation. This is exactly what both Simeon and Anna proclaim. As Mary and Joseph made their way into Jerusalem, they just so happened, right? They just so happened to cross paths with this man named Simeon. We know it just wasn't that. It didn't just so happen. It was God orchestrating this, this meeting. Notice there in the text, it says, um, uh, verse 27, about Simeon. And he came in the spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom. So at that same exact time when Mary and Joseph were bringing Jesus in the temple, at that same exact time, the Holy Spirit was prompting and leading Simeon to come into the temple at that very moment so that at that very moment, Simeon lays eyes on the one who had been promised. And upon seeing Jesus, Simeon takes him up in his arms and responds with a blessing. First to the Lord, See that in verses 28 through 32, and then a blessing to Mary and Joseph, specifically to Mary in verses 33 through 35. Three important things that we see here about the salvation Jesus came to provide. Number one, it's a prepared salvation. Notice as Simeon looks 
upon Jesus and takes him up in his arms in verse 28. He blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation, a salvation, he says, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. You see, this was a salvation that God had prepared. Simeon understood that this salvation was God's work. It was God's doing. Salvation indeed was something prepared even before the foundation of the world that God was orchestrating and going to bring about. This salvation was one that God would accomplish. But not only is it a prepared salvation, it's a global salvation. You see that there in the text, verse 31, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, and then he defines all peoples and saying a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see, while it's true that Simeon understood and was waiting upon the consolation of Israel, he also understood that the scope of this ministry, of the Messiah's ministry, would reach well beyond the borders of Israel. It's a salvation that was prepared in the presence of all people. Simeon understood quite well the truth that Paul would later write in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Where Paul says there, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also to the Greek. You see, the light that was coming into the world would initially come to and through the Jewish people, thus the glory that they're referred to as here. But it would reach through the Jewish people to the ends of the earth, also to the Gentiles. So as as Simeon takes this child up from the arms of these Jewish parents, right in the epicenter of Judaism, the temple, he declares through his Jewish mouth that this child is the savior of the world. He is the savior of all peoples. Friends, this we know is true from Old to New Testament. We have seen this Reality declared time and time again. And this reality, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what Jesus came to accomplish is good news for all peoples. It is good news for the world, not just for a segment here or a segment there. And friends, when we think about that truth, when we think about that reality, that will impact the nature of our ministry, the scope of our ministry, it will impact how we pray. It will impact our perspectives of world events, how we view peoples and nations. And if I even dare this morning to kind of wade into this, there's a lot of tension right now regarding the country of Iran. And I'll leave it and pray, and we need to be praying for wisdom for the military politicians, all those who are making those decisions, that they would make wise and careful decisions. But another reality in Iran that's the most, that that, that I think we need to also keep in mind is that Iran is the most receptive Muslim country in the Middle East to the gospel. In 1979, it had 500 Christians. And today, 40 years later, it's estimated to have over 1 million believers most of which are persecuted for their faith. The second fastest growing church, Iran is the first fastest growing church in the Middle East. The second fastest growing church in the Middle East is Afghanistan, largely reached by Iranian believers going over into sharing the gospel with them. 
So when you begin to think global salvation, it should inform your perspective of world events and what's going on in our world today and how we pray for the nations, how we pray for things going on in countries we've never even heard of, much less those that we have. You see, this is a global salvation, a salvation that we want to reach the ends of the earth, that we want to see brothers and sisters mobilized to go to the ends of the earth to share this good news. It's a global salvation. But notice, it's also a dividing salvation. While this text radiates mostly with joyful tune, it, is also, it also has a bit of sobering reality to it. Because notice what, uh, what Simeon goes on to say in his second blessing. It says in verse 33, and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I mean, can you imagine? Your newborn child being held up in the temple, in Jerusalem, being declared as the one who is the light for the nations, the glory of Israel, right there. Can you, I mean, I would have marveled too. So they marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now these are strange words to be described as a blessing. But Simeon's point is clear. The light this child will bring is also a light that will expose. Because he exposes sinners for who they are, he will be opposed ultimately to the point of his own death, which paradoxically is the way this salvation will be accomplished. Because of him, because of Jesus. This is why I say the most pressing question of our day, just as it's been all throughout the course of human history, is who is Jesus? What, it is, what, what do you do with him? The reason that's the most pressing question is because Jesus is the great dividing line of history. Through him, some will rise, and through him, many will fall. Condemnation and salvation all hang in the balance upon the shoulders of this child later to be this man. Friends, we know that this prophetic word that Simeon pronounces, this blessing of sorts, that he is appointed, that he is set apart for this purpose, and that because of him, Many would fall and many would rise. He would be assigned to be opposed. We know that as we look throughout the course of human history, we even look at the ministry of Jesus, as we'll see later on in the Gospel of Luke itself, how this truth unfolds before our very eyes. Jesus still is the great dividing line. And what you do with him will impact your eternity. Perhaps you find yourself here today and you're not all sure what to make of Jesus. That's okay, we're glad you're here. We hope you keep coming back. We'd love to, to have conversations with you. Maybe you're here and you just, you're, not what, you're not all that sure what to make of him. Maybe, maybe you don't know that much about him or maybe you've, 
you've, you know a lot about him and, and you're still, you still have a lot of questions. Maybe you're aware that some things are wrong in your life and just kind of disordered in your life, but, but you don't see how any of that has to do with him. I mean, after all, he's come and gone some 2,000 years ago. Friend, I would just remind you, this child Simeon embraced and raised up and blessed in the temple is the same one to whom you will bow and give account of your life. What you do with Jesus will indeed impact your eternity. Sobering reality is that the light Jesus shines into the world reveals the fact that we are all broken, that we are all sinful, and that none of us deserve salvation on our own. And the sad fact is, is that at the very core of what's wrong with us is that we all have stood in opposition to Jesus and rebellion against God. We've desired sin more than his glory. We've all turned aside and yet Jesus came despite our rejection, despite our rebellion, so that we could be long, we could belong to God so that we could receive the consolation and the salvation that God offers to the world. Friends, we should know that this sinful rebellion that exists in our own hearts and in the, throughout the world today, that rebellion will be put down. In fact, it has been. If we continue in our sin and rebellion against God, we will fall. Those that Simeon speaks of, you're, you're either part of those who will fall or part of those who will rise. There's two kinds of people in the world, right? The, the lost and the saved, those who fall, those who rise. Those who have life, those who are walking in death. Friends, Christ was sent so that we may not fall, but that we might indeed rise. And it was through his finished work, through his faithful obedience, and through his sacrificial death upon the cross, and his triumphant resurrection some three days later, that he declared an end to this great enemy once and for all that we have known as sin that he conquered death, he conquered hell, he conquered sin so that those who would put their hope and trust in him will be forgiven and cleansed of their sin once and for all, be clothed in his righteousness and be rightly accepted before God. And if you're here today and you're not sure what to do with Jesus, I would just simply tell you to look to him and cling to him. He is your only hope. He is your only hope in life and death. Simeon got this. Notice he got this looking forward. The cross hasn't even happened yet. The resurrection hasn't even happened yet. He got it crystal clear. It's appointed for the rising and fall of many. And friends, we look back now from our vantage point to the reality that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he, res he was raised from the dead, he's promised to come again. And he calls us to follow him. You know, there are several things we need to consider when, when it comes to, to putting our trust in Jesus and following him. I like how, how Pastor Mark Dever up at Capitol Hill Baptist Church put it. He said, when, when, whenever you're considering following Jesus, there are three things to consider. First, it's costly, so consider it wisely. It's costly. It may cost you friendships, it may cost you family, it may cost you relationships, it may cost you a lot, so you need to consider it wisely. Number two, it's urgent, so make it soon. Some of you may be here this morning, you're thinking about 
Jesus and you, you, you don't consider yourself a Christian and you're thinking, well, I might follow him, maybe, I don't know. Friends, it's urgent. You're not promised another day. Look to Christ and put your hope in him. And number three, Dever says, it's worth it so you'll never regret it. It's costly, so consider it wisely. It's urgent, so make it soon. And it's worth it so you'll never regret it. Which leads me right into the last observation we see about Jesus, that Jesus is the object of our devotion. See that in verses 36 through 39. Specifically through a lady by the name of Anna. When one encounters the truth of who Jesus is and is changed by him, your life changes. You see, there was another person in the temple that day and her name is Anna. She was a prophetess. And as such, she was a vessel for God's revelation. She too is described as a godly and pious follower. She shows us what a life of devotion looks like when Christ is the object of that devotion. Several characteristics that stick out in Anna's life that I think are helpful as she centers her life upon this promise of Messiah and now his coming. First of all, you see that her life is a life of worship. She's described as someone who did not depart the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, it's unlikely that she was literally physically there 24-7, like she slept in the temple and all those kinds of things. But the point that Luke's pointing out here is that she was devoted in her faith. She was regularly there worshiping the Lord. And her role as a prophetess had her uniquely present there, but her activity represents a person totally focused on serving Christ. Serving the Lord. Friend, I would say if you want to see an example of what true godliness and devotion looks like, look to Anna. She's a model believer who pours out her life in devotion to the Lord. Friends, when you think about your life as a Christian, our life is to be a life that's lived out in worship. We're called, Paul says in Romans 12, our lives are called to be living sacrifices. The way you carry yourself in this world ought to be obvious to everyone around you after being with you a few minutes at least that you know Jesus and that you're radically committed to him. Friends, is Jesus the object of your affection and devotion? Do you regularly pursue him? And I'm asking you to consider that, but what if we were to ask everyone who knew you? would they affirm that about you? Would they affirm that yes, indeed, Jesus Christ is the object of this person's devotions and affection? No question asked. Life of worship, this is what we see in Anna. She looks to him and she looks to the Lord and trusts in his promises. Her life is, is radically committed to him, but you notice also it's a life of thanksgiving. We're told that at the same time Simeon saw Jesus that that, that she too was present and she begins to give thanks to God, we're told. Verse 38, coming up that very hour, the same exact time that Mary and Joseph were meeting with Simeon, she began to give thanks to God. Friends, when you realize that God has sent his only son to be your savior, you ought to thank him. The Christian heart should be a heart regularly flowing with gratitude and thanksgiving to the Lord for what he has done. And brothers and sisters, I say this 
to each of us this morning as Christians that our lives would be all the richer if we did not allow our hearts to shrivel up in selfishness and instead continue to reflect on the glories of Christ's riches and thank him for all that he is and all that he's done. There are many Christians today that live in a constant state of misery and that is not what the gospel was intended to produce in your life. The gospel was intended to provide you the very salvation you needed and give you hope, to give you consolation, to give you comfort, to give you joy so that you can be thankful to God for all that he's done. And you see that overflowing in Anna's life. She thanked the Lord. But also we see that a life of devotion, when Jesus is the object of that devotion, it's to be a life of proclamation. We continue to read that Anna began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, redemption of Jerusalem. When Anna saw the Christ, she couldn't keep quiet. When she saw Jesus, she, she, couldn't, she couldn't hold it in. She was telling everyone around her about the glories and wonders of this Savior that was promised that would come and bring redemption. She began to speak of him to all who were waiting, we're told. She is a faithful evangelist. She uses her calling as a prophetess to declare the good news of who Jesus is to those who were around her and who would listen to her. Friends, that's the very same response we all should have, no matter our position, no matter our calling. We should faithfully speak of him to those around us and those who are in our reach. Anna demonstrates the kind of life the Christian ought to live, a life of devotion marked by worship, thanksgiving, and proclamation. When your life is centered upon the Lord Jesus, that's exactly what should be flowing out of you and from you. Are you speaking regularly? I'm, some of us are more gifted than others when it comes to, to being evangelist, I get that. But friend, are you regularly pointing out God's work of grace in your life through Jesus Christ to others around you in your own way? You don't have to be a very charismatic, outgoing kind of individual to do that well. Just faithfully proclaim the truth of who Jesus is to those around you. As you've heard me say this before in, in other settings that if people ask me, well, what's your evangelism strategy in St. Mary's County? I'll say, you, right here. This is the evangelism strategy in St. Mary's County. As you go and tell God, give us more Annas in this world who are willing to proclaim and declare the glories of this great Savior. See, both Simeon and Anna show us how one can live a faithful life marked by joy and surrender. They show us that when one's life is centered upon Jesus, we can experience a life of joy and contentment no matter what circumstances may be around us. Here you have, listen to this, here you have two people near the end of their life, still serving faithfully. They're still going at it for Jesus. They're, they're, they're almost, they're ready to, to go out and depart this world. So friends, it's a reminder to us that Christian devotion is not ultimately based upon someone's age or someone's gender or anything else for that matter. If you find yourself moving closer towards retirement or already retired, remember, ministry still continues, friend. You never retire from gospel ministry. And if you're younger, if you're younger, know that if the Lord can raise up a young teenage girl named Mary to bring the Savior into the world, he can use you. 
Already here in the first chapters of Luke, we've seen how God uses a wide range of people from a variety of different social backgrounds, genders, and ages. You have Mary to Anna. You have the shepherds to Simeon, Zechariah, and all share in the joy and blessing of Christ's coming. Because Jesus is the savior for all types of people. Our identity, our identity, regardless of age, race, life stage, gender, social background, our identity as a Christian is to be just that. Are we a follower of Christ? Are we a follower of Christ? Who is Jesus? Because that's the most pressing question of the day. It's the most pressing question of the century. And in fact, it's the most pressing question of all history. Who is Jesus? He is our comfort. He is our salvation. And he should be the object of our very devotion. Friends, as we enter a new year, may the truth radiating from these verses about him be the reality that our hearts embrace. For may Jesus be the source of your comfort. And if he's not, look to him and find it. May he be the one who provides you salvation. Maybe you don't have that today. May you find it. And as those who know it, may you rejoice in it. And may he, in fact, be the object of our devotion. Friends, may this year be a year in which our lives individually and corporately together increasingly reflect these realities for the glory and praise of our King. May it be a year in which our worship, which our thanksgiving, and which our proclamation of this Jesus grows all the stronger. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this truth from your word today. We thank you, God, that you speak to us, that you have not remained silent, but God, that you have revealed yourself through your word and through the sending of your son. Father, it is encouraging news to us to hear the testimony of these brothers and sisters in this text. From two men and two women, from Simeon to Anna to Mary and Joseph, of your faithfulness in sending us a comforter, a savior, and one to whom we are called to follow. Father, it's my prayer this morning that as Christian people, that we would be reminded yet again of the glories of your salvation, of the wonders of what you have done for us. Father, would you forgive us for our apathy and our complacency? Forgive us when we should have spoken of Christ and remained silent. Forgive us when our lives, Lord, do not reflect the ongoing worship that you've called us to. Forgive us, Lord, when our hearts have grown thankless and we're not thankful. Lord, would you renew us this morning and would you renew us this day that we might be your people. Father, for those who may not be following Jesus in this room, I pray for them that you would encourage them in this truth, that you would open their eyes and their hearts to the realities of who you are and what you've done by sending your son to be the savior of the world. God, we thank you for what you've done for us and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.